See, the book of Daniel is a difficult book to talk about. In fact, we didn't complete all of it because 7 to 12, those chapters really get heavy into some complicated stuff, which is probably more apt for a Sunday school. But we will cover today the first six chapters, the first, and I want to just review and do some summary. Actually, instead of the house lights, could we just get some of these front lights on? It's just, we can just get some of the front lights. No luck there? No worries. I'll just move down here. All right. So, just doing some of that review through the book of Daniel, through the book of Daniel, that's what we're going to do today. And there are a lot of really good and important themes, a lot of good important themes and what I've done today is I've wanted to just kind of synthesize and just gather it under, under two main headings. Two main headings. If you look in your bulletin, you're going to find these two headings. First of all is that hideous strength. That hideous strength. And secondly is what it means to live under that hideous strength. And so basically what I've done is I've taken the biggest, most important themes of the book of Daniel and I've kind of just made it, um, summarized it under these two big things, these two big ideas, which I think summarize everything for us from those first six chapters. And so that first heading, we'll start there, That Hideous Strength. That title, That Hideous Strength, comes from a book by C.S. Lewis, and it, it refers to the Tower of Babel, that hideous strength that is built up Daniel the book of Daniel, I think, is all about that hideous strength. And I'm going to elaborate what I mean by this hideous strength. What is that great world power? What is that one thing that is deceptively, deceptively good? It might seem like it's benevolent. In C.S. Lewis's book, That Hideous Strength, the primary antagonist is an organization called the NICE. And the NICE stands for N-I-C-E. It stands for the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. The National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. It surely sounds nice. It sounds benevolent. But eventually we find out by the end of the book, this is a world evil. This is a great power. This is something that is dangerous. This is the hideous strength that we talk about. And we see this throughout the book of Daniel. In one place, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar dreams about this great tree that grows so large and strong. It says the height of the tree reaches to the sky. It reaches to the sky. That's an important reference. It has food that is plentiful. It will feed everything, all of the animals. Everything likes to live in this tree. And the whole earth can basically find its sustenance and everything that it needs in this great tree. It certainly sounds good. It sounds like something that is all-encompassing. It's benevolent. I would love to live in this tree. It provides all the food that we need, all the shelter, and everything that we could ever want is provided by this tree. But at the same time, there's something eerily suspicious about it. This tree that can provide for everybody, and if you just pay a little bit extra towards your Prime membership, it will deliver directly to your door overnight, and everything you could ever want will come. That concerns me when something gets that powerful, when companies starting out in the Northwest relocate and start a HQ in Washington, D.C. Some of you are following with what I'm talking about here. Political moves like that concerns me. 
and amassing of that much power concerns me. It's benevolent. It might seem all-encompassing and good, but at the same time, there's something about it that's just getting a little too powerful. And maybe there might be one rebel that says, I, I, I'm suspicious about this great tree of Nebuchadnezzar. And the rebel, what she does is she sneaks out at night, she climbs the tree, and she has her knife. And she begins to etch her initials. She's doing some graffiti. And as she scratches her initials into the bark of the tree, she begins to discover that it's peeling away. Nebuchadnezzar's tree, as she's peeling away the bark, she can find something underneath the tree. There's something underneath the bark of Nebuchadnezzar's tree. There is something there. And this, this gets us into something that is ancient and old and prehistoric, primeval, all the way back to Genesis 10. Underneath Nebuchadnezzar's tree, there's something there, and I want to turn your attention. In fact, if you look on the inside of your bulletin, you'll see that I've, we've, uh, we've printed out Genesis 10, captions from 10 and 11. And it says in Genesis 10, it introduces a character named Nimrod. Legendary, legendary character. In Genesis 10, verse 9, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, is what it says. Some translators actually translate this to say, Nimrod was a hunter against God, against the Lord. And if, you, if you're wondering who this Nimrod character is, I mean, he might sound like a good thing. He was a great hunter. But notice there are not many nice young Jewish boys running around named Nimrod. People don't name their boys Nimrod. The reason being, according to Jewish tradition, Nimrod was a dark leader. He was a tyrant. He was somebody that was not for the Lord, but he was set against the Lord. And what we see in verse 10 of chapter 10 in Genesis is that Nimrod not only was somebody who was against the Lord, but that he built a kingdom. And the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom, it was called, does anybody know? Babel. Babel. And it further says it's in the land of Shinar. Now, there's two things about this that are significant and, are, and that are important. First of all, it confirms if Nimrod was the founder of the kingdom of Babylon, perhaps indeed, Nimrod was the one that built the famous Tower of Babel. He was the one that built this great abomination, that great hideous strength. He was the one that built the Tower of Babel. And some, uh, some Jewish, uh, according to Jew Jewish tradition, that was Nimrod's way of climbing away from God. Now, how is it that you would build a tower that's so high that you would try to escape God? That you try to escape from God by climbing higher? That doesn't seem to make sense. You'd think you're getting closer to the heavens. But the thing is, this happened after the flood. Remember that. And so when the flood took over the whole earth, it covered the whole earth, Nimrod said, I am going to escape God's judgment. I'm going to build something so high that the waters can never drown me out. I'm going to be beyond the reach of God. God will not be able to reach me. The Tower of Babel is Nimrod's attempt to be beyond God's reach. And so, yes, if his kingdom was Babel, it is quite feasible. I think there's a connection there between Nimrod and the Tower of Babylon. Um, the Tower of Babel, rather. But there's a second connection. 
And that second connection is that this kingdom called Babel and Shinar, it is pretty much one and the same with Babylon. In other words, I think what we're seeing here is the original, original founder of the kingdom of Babylon. Way before Nebuchadnezzar, way before Belshazzar, way before Darius, there was Nimrod, the founder of Babylon. He was the one that would originally set the mold against God. What I'm saying is this, and here's where I want to drive the point home. The book of Daniel is about a godly young man who lives in an empire, a world empire that is set against God. And when this rebel peels away the bark of the tree of Nebuchadnezzar, underneath what you will find is ancient, ancient, ancient granddaddy's Tower of Babel. This hideous strength always existed. It goes all the way back to ancient times. Now, if I can drive this point home, especially for the younger ones, in 1976, George Lucas decided to make the great epic, the space trilogy. And so he starts the Star Wars uh, series with episode four. Who does that? And then the trilogy, episode four, five, and six, well, the great evil of episode of, of the Star Wars original trilogy is the empire, the evil empire. And just like the book of Daniel, we have the evil empire, the evil empire of Babylon. But the thing is, we're at episode four. If you go further back, we see further back in episode one, two, and three, even before the empire existed, what was there? For Star Wars people, you know that this was the Sith. And not only that, it didn't just end there. But after the Empire was defeated, the Death Star was blown up, you get into Episodes 7, 8, and 9, what do you have? The First Order. Now, if you're tracking with what I'm saying, Babylon has always existed in one form or another. Babylon, in the book of Daniel, was the great evil empire. But Babylon existed in ancient times all the way in Genesis in the very beginning of the Bible. And Babylon will exist in different form, but it will still exist all the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation 17 and 18. In other words, the great antagonist of the Bible is Satan. Satan's kingdom is Babylon. And Babylon has existed since the ancient of days. It exists all the way to the end of time. Friends, the point that I'm making is the book of Daniel is relevant to you because we as Christians still live in Babylon today. Babylon always existed. It was an ancient, ancient evil that went all the way back to Nimrod's time, even before it was Satan's nest is what it was. And it will continue to exist all the way to the end. Well, you're saying, Pastor Wayne, this sounds kind of, you know, I, don't, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, the, the evil empire, but I don't see it as that bad. My life is not that bad. How does Babylon exist today? How does Nimrod's tower, the Tower of Babylon, the Tower of Babel, how is that still around today? And I'll give you an example. I was driving downtown a couple of months ago, 
And on I-10, I saw a sign. It caught my eye because it was bright, garish green. And it was blinking, this green sign. And it had a picture on this sign of a mother joyously holding a baby. And underneath this beautiful picture of the mother and baby, there were the words, turn hope into happiness. Turn hope into happiness. And I reflected on this, and it disturbed me. I mean, I can sympathize and empathize. Please, I empathize and understand the great struggle of infertility. I know what that's about. But at the same time, when it's so commercialized that we say we can turn our hope into happiness just like that, that to me smells like Babylon. It smells to me something like Nimrod's tower. What of the longings and the prayers of Rebecca and Sarah and Rachel and Hannah What about all of those long waitings before God, praying, God, give me a child, give me a child? Well, we don't really need God anymore. Why? Because we can just pull off the freeway and turn hope into happiness just like that. That is concerning. It is concerning to me that we get into territory today where quite literally, this is a brave new world. If you've ever read Aldous Huxley and the brave new world, read it again. It is speaking almost prophetically about what is going on today. That we have genetic technologies, CRISPR, it's called CRISPR. There are reproductive genetic technologies. Hey, if you say, I don't like this feature about myself, I'd like to edit the genes out for the next generation. We can manipulate things human stem cell research, all of these things containing scary ethics. Scary ethics. It concerns me when we get to the place where we no longer need God and science answers everything. There was a famous conversation that took place a couple of hundred years ago. There was a scientist named Pierre Laplace. And Pierre Laplace was brilliant. He mapped out the universe and he presented it before the Emperor Napoleon. And he said, this is the scientific scheme. He was brilliant. This is the cosmology of the universe. And Napoleon looked at it and he said, well, that's very interesting. But where does God fit in all of this? And Laplace's reply was famous and immortalized. His response was, God? God? I have no need for that hypothesis anymore. The Tower of Babel. When we say that I'm going to escape God's reach, I have no need for the God hypothesis anymore. That is when we have been drinking the waters of Babylon. That is when we have excluded God from all of our equations. Why? Because we can turn hope into happiness instantly. And I sympathize with that. But at the same time, do we really not need God anymore? This, friends, I think is the great message of the book of Daniel. 
It's the great message of the book of Daniel. And it is concerning. Because what happens when we begin to play God, when we begin, we begin to manipulate our genes, when we begin to say that we no longer have a need for the God hypothesis, we begin to play around, whether it's playing with our genes or reproductive genetic technologies or whatnot, we play with things that belong to God. We play with ethics. We play with ethics. And we play with holy things. There was somebody who did that in the book of Daniel. His name was Belshazzar. And Belshazzar playing with holy things. He said, well, I'm daddy's son. Daddy raided the temple of God and he took all of the holy things from the temple. Well, I'm going to take all of those objects, the drinking cups and all of that stuff from the temple of God. And we're going to have a drinking party. Playing with holy things. Friends, the longer we live in Babylon, and friends, we all live in Babylon, but the longer we drink its waters, the longer we smell the fumes, we begin to play with holy things. We begin to play with holy things. And there are effects to this, dangerous effects, and I list two, and these are the fill in the blanks in your, in your notes. Two things that happen when we've been drinking the water too long, when we've been living according to Babylon's, Babylon's ethical world scheme. When we do that long enough, the first thing that happens, the first effect of living under Babylon, the first fill in the blank, is broken scales. Our scales become broken. And you see that this is what the message, God's message to Belshazzar is. God's message to Belshazzar is you've been weighed on the scales, not your scales, my scales, and you've been found deficient. When we weigh ourselves on our own scales and we say it's not that bad, I'm not that bad compared to Nebuchadnezzar, or I don't do things, or when we constantly kind of fudge our ethics a little bit, we put our finger on the scales, you keep doing that, you're going to break the scales. You keep doing that, you're going to break the scales. We keep doing that, we're going to break the scales. All of modern life, if I can just get a little bit philosophical here, and I know this is getting a little bit into teaching. Daniel is more of a teaching book. And just track with me. All of modern life is about playing with scales. And the great philosophers, philosophers are not just people who kind of sit around, you know, on a rock and say, I think, therefore I am, and just kind of, you know, waste their life on impractical things. The thing about philosophy is that it reflects reality. And when Nietzsche, the philosopher, Nietzsche, 200 years ago, said, we don't need values anymore. Let's live in a valueless society. Everybody make your own values. That is being worked out today. There are no more values. What you value is not my value, and what you consider good is not good. And basically, things are fudged. We play around with God's skills because we say my values are different, my value system, and in the end, we break the scales. We break the scales. There was another philosopher, you go back 500 years, a political philosopher named Machiavelli. And this guy, he went straight for the jugular. He was talking about politics, but this can be applied to business in all areas of life. That you look at this person, this businessman, and he's an honest businessman. And because he's honest and he tells the truth, he doesn't make a lot of money. 
People would call him a dupe or some other name. But then you have this other businessman that cheats, that markets in a way that might be a little bit unethical, that he uses things to sell that are wrong and you just know it, and yet he is successful. For him to work unethically, for him it works out to be good. And what this philosopher Machiavelli said is what is good for one person is actually bad, and what is bad is good. Reversing all of these scales and these ethics Friends, what I'm trying to say is we live in a world where you can get away justifying the most heinous of crimes. We can justify ourselves and say, I'm not that bad. We can justify ourselves and put our finger on the scales. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. The scales will break. They will break. And when they break, we are the ones weighed on God's scales and found deficient. I would be bold enough to say, don't drink the water. Don't drink Babylon's water. What was the hashtag of the series, of the, of the Daniel series? No compromise. If being a Christian means operating from an ethical worldview, do it. Don't go with the way the world is going. There is a reason why Daniel said, I'm not going to eat the food there is a reason why he said, I'm not going to pray the way you people pray to your gods. I'm not going to dance to a valueless society. This is that hideous strength. And instead, Daniel said, no, I'm not going to do it. And I run across again and again business persons that say, this is, Pastor, you don't understand. It's really, really hard. Because in the world, everybody cheats. Everybody does unethical things. Everybody fudges the numbers a little bit, puts their fingers on the scales. And those are the ones who succeed. Well, play a different game. Change the game. Don't go that way. Don't drink the water of Babylon. Because the scales break, and I will be the one found deficient. And there is a second, second piece to this. When we drink the waters of Babylon repeatedly... This is the second effect. The first is the scales break. The second is the word of God doesn't make sense anymore. The word of God will no longer make any sense. Now this is interesting. The words that were written on the wall, this is the famous story of Belshazzar playing around with holy things and the hand appears and writes on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. What do those words mean? You know what those words mean? It's quite simple. They mean number, way, divide. And the thing is, those words, they're Aramaic. They're Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of trade. Everybody spoke Aramaic at that time. There was no reason why these people could not have, should not have been able to read that. Not, I mean, let alone interpret. It says literally, they couldn't even read it. Friends, do you understand the spiritual message here? Do you? It is possible to become so intoxicated with the Babylonian way. It is possible to live so much through this cheating, through this fudging, through this hedging around uh, half-truths. It is possible for us to continue to live like that and pick up the Bible in plain English and it makes no sense. It's gibberish. Why is it gibberish? 
Because what's good in the Bible, you consider bad. And what's bad in the Bible, we consider good. And our ethics already are compromised. And therefore, we read the Bible and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. We close it and we just toss it out. We don't understand the Word of God anymore. Because we've been drinking the waters of Babylon. It is possible for the Word of God to make no sense. The great Puritan pastor and theologian, he once said that it is possible to become sermon-proof. It is possible to become sickness-proof. That we hear the message, but because we're living on a valueless foundation, living by drinking the waters of Babylon, it is possible for us to be completely inoculated to conviction completely inoculated to the Holy Spirit, that is terrifying. It's terrifying. Don't drink the water. Well, everybody does it. How do I march to this? Don't do it. No compromise. Because if we keep doing that, the scales will break and we will be found deficient. And secondly, we will no longer understand the Word of God at all. It will make no sense. I think that is a very important summary. That first heading, the hideous strength, is a very important summary of the message Daniel has to give to us. That the first six chapters of Daniel is telling us, watch out for Babylon do not go with the flow. Avoid. Remember, do you guys remember the choice food? The Aramaic word there, pot bag. Don't take the pot bag. Don't take the pot bag. Don't go for it. Daniel lived differently. But the question now gets us into the second half. So if the first half is talking about Dan, uh, this is talking about Babylon, what Babylon is, the second half, the, the second big theme that I want to address that I think Daniel really teaches us is how or what it means to live under that hideous strength. What does it mean for us to live under that hideous strength? What did it mean for Daniel to live under Babylon? And that's our second half for today. How do we persist in living God's way when we live under Babylon. And let me just clarify, when I say Babylon, I'm not just talking about one nation. I'm not talking about America or that, you know, I'm not talking about an economic system like communism or something. What I'm talking about is the world, quote unquote, the world. The Bible talks about the world. The world drinks the water, is fed from the tree of Nebuchadnezzar. The capital of the world is the Tower of Babel. The only way the world knows how to live is to cheat, to get ahead. It is to kill. To, it's very Darwinian. I'm stronger. I will step on the weaker. The Christian way is different. And we have to live differently. How? How do we live differently? Let's learn from what God did. How did God prepare us to live like Daniel under that hideous strength, this goes once again all the way back to legendary, legendary ancient times. Remember, the book of uh, uh, remember, uh, uh, Babylon is not just something in the book of Daniel. It goes all the way back to the beginning, and it persists all the way to the end of the Bible. It's a big 
It's a big theme. But all the way in the very beginning, let's say it was like this. God was walking through a hot Texas field one day, and he said, this is my beautiful creation. And then something started biting his toes. And he said, oh, goodness. God, something's biting his toes. And not only that, they're swarming. And he sees that proliferating the beautiful Texas landscape are fire ants. And God sees this abomination, and he says, this abomination, that's what, fire ants are an abomination. I don't know what purpose they serve in the created order except to torment me. I'm allergic to fire ants. And so God says, I know what I'm going to do. This great evil that exists on the earth, I'm going to make it rain like Hurricane Harvey. And so the floodwaters come. I know that's what I was thinking. They said, no more fire ants after that. And the waters rise. And the fire ants, they try to fight to survive. They're filled with evil and anger and all that. Uh, but then the waters just keep getting higher and higher. And then to add good measure, I add on another 20 feet. And I leave the water there for a couple of years. No more fire ants. And then the flood waters subside. And God finally says all of the evil has been obliterated from the landscape. Children, go and play. And the children take off their shoes and run through the Texas landscape. And they're, yay, barefoot. Until one child trips over that hideous strength and gets covered with fire ants, trying to climb up to the highest place in the heavens. The fire ants persist, and God face plants himself. And he says, I thought I took care of this problem, but there is this tower building up to the heavens trying to escape the waters. This, 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 this fire and problem is not going away. And so God thinks, what am I going to do? Maybe I'll send another flood. Oh, darn it, the rainbow. I can't do that. Well, God says, maybe, maybe I'll fight fire with fire. Well, let's wait a couple of years for that. God says, we'll hold off on that thing. So what is God going to do to fight the fire ant problem? That hideous strength, that tower that persists in building to the heavens. What is God's brilliant solution? Friends, I discovered this in an adult Sunday school class with Anthony and with Moy and with, with a couple of other people. This is why you want to be in adult Sunday school, because discoveries are made. What was God's solution to the fire ant crisis, to the problem of evil? You could think that God's solution is to smite or to destroy or to use more force, meet force with force. But God does something so genius, so brilliant, that it's just got to be gospel. It makes so much sense. The fire ant problem is not going away. So what does God do? He picks up one fire ant named Abram. Now, do you see this? Where is it? Let me back up here. The Tower of Babel, what chapter is that? That's chapter 11 of Genesis. Immediately after the Tower of Babel, immediately after, what does God do in Genesis 12? He calls Abram. This is his solution. This is God's solution, not just to evil in the world, but to Babylon. He picks up one fire ant, and the fire ant's like, <laughs> and then God says, I bless you. Do you hear that? I bless you. And, I, and it, it's, it's I think it's accurate to say, that, to, to, to say that this is what God does, because this one fire ant originally 
came from Ur of the Chaldeans. By all rights and measure, Abraham was just another Babylonian running around. But God picks up Abram, and he says, I bless you. This is how God combats Babylon. This is the fill in the blank under that second heading. The first thing that God does is he blesses you. And this fire and stops, and it looks up, and it says, you bless me. And God says, I bless you, Genesis 12, too. I bless you. This is exactly what we see happening in the book of Daniel. Daniel is cast out, away from home, away from Jerusalem. He's under a hostile regime. But God's blessing continues to sit heavy on Daniel. It sits heavy on Daniel, and people can't help but to notice this guy is wearing a lucky charm or something. But something about him is blessed. And I remember a while ago, my friend was telling, we were, I was talking to my friend on the phone. He says, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, the book of Daniel. And he said, Daniel, Daniel, that's the guy who's running around with Potiphar's wife, right? And I said, no, 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 no. But I'm so glad you made that connection. Who was that? Potiphar's, the whole Potiphar story. Children, you should know because you spent camp learning about that. It's Joseph. But there is a connection there. There's a connection between Daniel and Joseph, and it's not just a male thing. Who's the female? Esther. And what you have in these characters in the Bible is somebody whom God has blessed, although they are under hostile regimes. You see, the blessing that God puts on Abraham, it surely exists. It went through Joseph. Joseph was blessed so much that everything he touched turned to success. But think about this, kids. Remember, you know, we were learning about Joseph last week at camp, and we saw all the skits and all of that. Well, what if Joseph never got sold into slavery? And Joseph was 70 years old, and he was still wearing his multicolored coat, and he's just kind of sitting around eating a chicken wing, and he's just, he's just large and in charge, and he's all about me, because daddy, I was daddy's favorite. I was the best. I was number one. Listen, blessing is not activated. Blessing is not activated until the second piece happens. How does God combat Babylon? He blesses you, but then he scatters you. Do you hear that? It is only until we are sent out, scattered out, looking outward, when we experience adversity, is that blessing activated. Blessing is not activated when we are just large, selfish babies. Blessing is activated in the midst of adversity, in the midst of your scattering in the midst of your own personal exile, whatever your exile may be, whatever experience of exile that you are undergoing, that is where God is activating your blessing. Your multicolored coat turns on and starts to sparkle when you are scattered. God blesses us, but then secondly, he scatters us. But it doesn't end there. Because by the end of the story, and we're rounding home plate here, we're coming to home plate. By the end of the story, who is it that's giving praise to God? By the end of Daniel, who is it that's giving praise to God? 
It's Nebuchadnezzar. It's Darius. It's Cyrus. It's Caesar. The third part of this is that God blesses us and then he scatters us, but ultimately three, he gives us a mission to bless others. He gives you a mission to bless others. I conclude on this note, friends. You know, woven, we've passed the four-year mark. We're still a baby. We're still a baby church in many rights and measure. But friends, this is the season. As we get into fall season, you know, Shelly came up here and talked about diversity. We are not going to grow as a church if we're not on a mission. And if we're just sitting here feeding ourselves, and this is just about me, then we'll be closed within a year. Fat, large, but wearing our multicolor coat. But if we recognize that we are scattered into the world, into our marketplaces, that we are blessed in order to bless others, it is imperative that this fall season we start inviting folks. I'm just going to have a candid family talk. You are all Daniels. You are all Esthers. You are all living. You are all living in enemy territory. It's important for us all to know that. But our mission will not be activated if we are self-centered. Nebuchadnezzar needs to hear. Darius needs to hear. And unless we are telling that message, unless we are not all involved in that, and we are through camp, through our noonday examine, through volunteering at the food bank yesterday, we were able to see some new people exposed to our community. This is what needs to happen, friends. We all need this fall season to get our message out. We need to be on mission. If we are not activating ourselves as a church on mission, then we will just end up in our multicolored coats in our own grave. And so... I just conclude with that. Don't drink the water of Babylon. Don't compromise. Live under the world regime, but live against it. Mm -hmm.